chapter 2. We start in verse 13. The last time we met on Wednesday night in 2 Thessalonians 2, we had some really tough scriptures. We talked about the man of lawlessness and some of the different uh, interpretations and thoughts on the man of lawlessness. The passage tonight won't be quite as difficult, very short and, and pretty easy to understand and, and encouraging, and that's that's good. So we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for your good word, and I pray, God, that as we read your word tonight, we would find some encouragement and some comfort from what it says, God. I pray that you hide me behind the cross as I preach and teach, that you take away any pride in my heart and any fear, dear Lord, about preaching and, and what I'm going to say or how I'm going to say it. But God, I pray that everything that's said will be said and done for your glory, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a brief recap, because what Paul was talking about kind of leads into the passages we look at tonight. We talked about the man of lawlessness. There are three popular views. There are, I'm sure, probably a lot of views, some that I'm not even aware of. Three popular views as to who this man of lawlessness could be. Some uh, would say this was somebody uh, that would have come around 70 A.D. in the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, after all, Paul does say, I've told you about these things, implying that maybe they know who this man of lawlessness is, even though Paul doesn't write. Uh, so that's one uh, possibility, is that this, this man of lawlessness was somebody from Rome that came when Jerusalem was destroyed, not many years after this letter would have been uh, written. A popular view for many years uh, throughout the early church, early church fathers for, for quite a while actually, uh, was that perhaps these passages were speaking of, of the Pope, the, the Catholic Church, uh, that maybe the Pope was the man of lawlessness. And it talks in this previous passage about the, the false signs and the, and the false wonders. Uh, uh, some have said that, you know, you see all these signs and wonders that the Catholic Church often presents uh, that, that may not really be signs and wonders at all, or even if they are, maybe they're not from the Lord. And so maybe the man of lawlessness spoken of that was going to come here was the Pope who was to come. Uh, in more recent years, uh, some have attributed this to uh, a future Antichrist. And when we look at passages like Second Thessalonians 2 and Daniel 7 and Daniel 9 and Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation, there's a lot of things in there that aren't really clear, and they may go together and speak of the same person and same time, or they may not go together and speak of the same person and same time, but, but all of those passages I just mentioned are very difficult. And so uh, w one view is, is that this is going to be a future antichrist, this man of lawlessness. It's not somebody who has come in the past at any point, but it's someone who is yet to come and to be Revealed, and so those are three of the three of the most popular views, probably that you may uh, hear today. And Paul was talking about this man of lawlessness, and that some had been deceived by this man of lawlessness, or would be deceived by this man of lawlessness, and in particularly the working of Satan, the lawless one who was to come. Paul said was from the working of Satan. Uh, and we see we didn't cover this, I don't think, in much detail in verses eleven and twelve, but it says. For this reason, uh, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false, so that all will be condemned. Those who did not believe 
the truth, but enjoyed unrighteousness. So uh, God sends them an, a delusion. He hands them over to their sinfulness uh, and their desire to do sinful things. Well, what does it mean? For what reason? Well, it tells us that uh, at the end of verse 10. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. And so these who are deceived by the man of lawlessness, the working of Satan, uh, they are eventually given over to their sin. Now, it's not that they didn't have a choice. They did have a choice, and they chose not to listen to the truth. Now, it doesn't matter if the man of lawlessness has come or will come. Uh, what matters is, is that we are presented by the truth when we read the Word of God. And so the determination of whether or not we will be gods or whether we will be the devils, so to speak, is whether or not we accept the truth. Now, these people, Paul says, did not accept the truth. And so they were, they were essentially handed over to their sin. Uh, Paul uses similar language at the beginning of Romans, speaking there in uh, Romans 1, that the people loved their sin so much that God eventually just handed them over to it. And that's kind of what we see here. For this reason, because they didn't believe the truth, God sends them a strong delusion, uh, and they believe what is false. Now, Again, it's not that they didn't have a choice, that God sent them a delusion so they couldn't choose. He sent them a delusion because they had already chosen. They had chosen to believe what was false, and so he allowed them to do so. And so uh, it's important to know what was going on in those last few verses because he makes a contrast, okay? These who are deceived by the working of Satan and the man of lawlessness and are, are handed over to their sinful desires and sinful lifestyle, well, they're different than the Christians that Paul is addressing here in 2 Thessalonians 2. And so, with that in mind, in verse 13, he says, but we, uh, that is uh, Paul and those who are with him, but we always, uh, must always thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord. Because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through the belief in the truth. Okay, so he's speaking to Christians here. And they're to be grateful, both Paul, those with him, and, and the Christians that he's speaking to, are all to be thankful uh, because they have been delivered by God. They are God's people. And what is, the, what is the cause for their deliverance? Well, he says there that all of these things occur through their belief in the truth. Those who had been deceived by the workings of Satan did not believe the truth. But these that Paul are speaking to are people who have believed the truth. They heard the truth of the gospel, and they have accepted that truth of the gospel. And so he says, uh, because from the beginning God has chosen you. Now, some of your translations may say uh, the first fruits, as the first fruits. Now, the reason there's a difference there is because some of the older manuscripts say from the beginning, and some of the older manuscripts say the first fruits. Now, there's not, not a real problem with that. I'm just acknowledging the difference. Uh, we, we may would interpret that a little different, though, depending on uh, what our translation says. Uh, if, we, if we have a translation that has a manuscript that says from the beginning, uh, it, it may remind us of uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where God says that we were chosen from the foundations of the world. And that may be uh, what Paul is referencing here, that, hey, as a child of God, you have been chosen from the get-go. God always knew you were going to choose him. You were always part of God's plan. If the, if the first fruits reading is correct, that might not be the idea he has in mind. He may just simply say, look, you are the first fruits. And that's a phrase that we see Christians refer to as in the New Testament. They are the first fruits, and we are 
the fruits that followed after. But the first fruits are those first group of people after Jesus died and was resurrected, the early Christians, the first one that came to Jesus Christ, the first ones that converted and heard the truth, uh, they were the first fruits. They were the first fruits of many fruits that would come after. And indeed, there have been many other Christians that have uh, 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 put their faith in Jesus Christ since the time of these people of Thessalonica. And so long as the world exists, there will be many more Christians to come. And so uh, he could be referencing, hey, from the beginning, from the get-go, God has chosen you. Or he could just be saying, look, as the first fruits, God has chosen you. Uh, but you are the first of many. There are many more who will follow you. Okay, and these people uh, are, are saved. They have salvation and sanctification uh, through what? Through their belief in the truth. That's the difference. Those in the verses before that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, they did not believe the truth. Those who are gods are those who believe the truth. And so the same is true for us today, regardless of who the man of lawlessness is. The truth is Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven, and there is salvation through no other than Jesus Christ. That is the truth. Now, we will accept that truth and live by that truth, or we will reject that truth. And so we have the same choice that the people of Thessalonica had. And, of course, some that Paul encountered rejected the truth, as he stated. But these, in Thessalonica that he's writing the letter to, they had accepted the truth. And so he is thankful to God for the fact that, hey, God has chosen you, you have chosen God, and you are living by the truth, and you are being sanctified. This process of sanctification, God is working for you uh, through you uh, to declare and make you holy. And so he does the same thing. For us. Verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he says our gospel there, I don't think he's saying that there's anything special about himself or any who are with him who are preaching the gospel. When he says our gospel there, he means the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel he's speaking of. It's pretty clear. Uh, there's not a different gospel. There is no other gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. There is no other good news. And so he says, look, he called you this through our gospel. That is, we came and we preached to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you heard God was calling you and you responded to that call, you put your faith in Jesus Christ and praise the Lord for that. Uh, verse 15, therefore, brother, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, either by our message or by our letter. So this is a good couple of words here for us to remember. Stand firm. Now, perhaps we need, to, we need to be reminded of those words because there are times that it's hard to stand in the midst of struggles and pain and sin and attacks that may come on us. It's hard to stand firm. When things really get tough in our life, we may be tempted to question God. God, why did you allow this to happen? Sometimes it may not be easy for us to stand for the Lord. Sometimes our faith, when tested, it may not be as strong as we thought it would be. And so Paul offers a word of encouragement here. Hey, you've heard the truth. You've accepted the truth. Therefore, stand firm, okay? And this is good advice for us today. Uh, whether we've walked with the Lord for a day or 10 years, there are days that it may be hard for us to stand. And so Paul gives this, this word to them and to us as well. And to hold to the traditions you were taught, either by message or by letter. Now, Paul had probably preached to these people in person. He's writing a letter to them now, and he says, don't forget what we've taught you. Don't forget the traditions that we taught you, the things 
that really matter. Uh, and what are the things that really matter? Well, the New Testament sums it up, love God and love people. I mean, those are the things that really matter, to serve the Lord, to take care of your neighbor. Like, these are the things that really matter. So don't forget the things that we have taught you. Uh, don't be deceived by false teachings because we see through Paul's writings that there were a lot of false teachings and, and bad things that were going on and bad teachers. And Paul says, remember what we've taught you. Look at our example. Remember the things that, that we've written to you, that we've told you throughout the years, the example that you've seen. Remember us, uh, not, not for Paul's sake, but for what sake? For Jesus' sake, because what Paul was doing was presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, remember things that we've taught you so you won't be those who are deceived by the working of Satan and the man of lawlessness. Verse 16, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our Father who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. Now, this is a good close to the chapter here. Uh, may God who gives us, or may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God, our Father, who loves and has given us eternal encouragement and good hope. Well, that's what we need, right? We need inter eternal encouragement, or some of your translations may say comfort. Why? Because we, we get discouraged probably on a daily basis. Uh, at the very least, probably on a weekly basis, there are, is some discouragement that takes place in our life. And so we constantly need to be encouraged. And Paul says here, hey, may the Lord himself encourage you and give you good hope. Because this world seems discouraging and hopeless at times. But we have a God who is encouraging and gives us good hope and praise the Lord for that because we need that. We need to be encouraged by the word of God, by the presence of God, but we also need to be encouraging to one another. Uh, do we encourage other people? When people see us, do the things we say to them and the way we treat them, is that encouraging to them? Or do they see us and think, man, I don't want to see him. I don't want to see her. He's going to say or she's going to say something negative or something discouraging. We don't want to be those who discourage we want to be those who encourage. And, of course, the Lord encourages us, but we also, as brothers and sisters in Christ, want to be those who encourage one another. Uh, and God does not only give us encouragement for the here and now, but Paul says what? An eternal encouragement, an eternal comfort. So we are comforted both now and forevermore. Uh, and good hope by what? By grace. Now, I've used this illustration in the past, and I don't think I've, I've used it recently, but it's a good illustration perhaps for us to be uh, reminded of. I know I used it uh, at the Apartments Tuesday, but, but you know there are three characteristics we see often of God, and that is that God is a just God, God is a merciful God, and God is a gracious God. Now, to be just means to give someone the punishment that they deserve. That is, they have committed some, some, some act that is wrong, and there is, a, there is a right punishment for that act. A good, a good illustration for that would be you go through town, and let's say the speed limit is 25 miles an hour, and you go through town going 100 miles an hour, and the cop pulls you over and gives you a ticket. Now, you deserve that ticket, do you not? I mean, you have broken the law. You have sped. And if you get that ticket, you have to go stand before the judge. Now, it just so happens I know the judge, and you probably don't want to have to stand before by speeding through the middle of town. Now, if you go and stand before the judge, and the judge says, the speed limit was 25, 
and you were going 100, the fine for that is $500. Is the judge right in that? Well, of course the judge is right. You have broken the law. This is the penalty for the law. So when you break the law and you have to pay the penalty, that is justice. Now, that's what God is. God is a just God, and we see God's justice throughout Scripture. Sometimes people have sinned, and they had to pay the price for that. Uh, God is just. We can never accuse God of being wrong, and so that is part of who God is. He is a just God, but praise the Lord, that's not all of who God is, because if that was all of who God was, we would be in trouble because we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. So if God says, you have sinned, the wages of sin is death and eternal punishment, then God would be right to do so. He wouldn't be a bad judge in that instance. But God also has other qualities that are great. And so justice is getting what you deserve. But God is also a merciful God. And so here's the illustration for that. You get your speeding ticket for going 125, and you go before the judge, and the judge says to you, okay, you broke the law, but I am not going to make you pay a fine. Now, that's mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You deserve to have to pay the fine, but mercy says, I'm not going to make you pay the fine. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Now, God is a merciful God, praise the Lord. I mean, he could have wiped people out all the time and still could. But God doesn't do that. God is patient with us. He doesn't give us what we deserve. If he did, he'd just strike us down. Because we sin all the time. He'd just say, okay, that's enough. You deserve the wages of sin is death. But I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to be merciful to you. So justice says, I'm going to give you what you deserve. Mercy says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. But God even goes one step further. Not only is he justice and merciful, but he's also gracious. Now, this is what that would look like. You get your ticket for going 125, and you go before the judge, and the judge says to you, I am not going to make you pay this fine. Instead, I'm going to give you an all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii for two weeks. That is grace. Grace is giving you what you do not deserve, and that's what God does. So he could be just, and he is just, and would be right in whatever punishment he doles out. But instead, he's patient with us. He doesn't give us what we deserve, and through Jesus Christ, he gives us what we do not deserve. He gives us an eternity with him. He pays the penalty of our sin for us. We are let off the hook, not because we are innocent, but because Jesus has paid the price. And that's what Paul says here. We have eternal encouragement and good hope by what? By the grace of God. And praise the Lord that God is gracious. Praise the Lord that he does not give us what we deserve, but instead he forgives our sins when we believe the truth in Jesus Christ, and he gives us what we do not deserve, he gives us an eternity with him, free of pain and suffering, when everything has been paid by Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross. We want to be those who hear the truth, who accept the truth, and who live by the truth, and live in this grace that Paul's talking about. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for these good words, and I pray that we would be encouraged by being here tonight, being in your presence, and being in the presence of one another, dear Lord, as we sung songs and as we have looked at your word. God, I pray that we would be those who hear your truth and accept your truth and live by your truth. God, help us to be encouraged, dear Lord. Maybe there's some here tonight that are discouraged, and God, we, we all, at some point in time, need to be encouraged and need to be comforted by you. We thank you for the comfort you give us in this life, but we thank you for the eternal comfort 
and the hope that we have to look forward to something better because of the grace you have shown us through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we have all received that grace tonight, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.